sometimes the hardest thing to do in your life is what is the most basic thing to do? We easily want to move on from what is basic often to what is more advanced. So to our musically inclined, you know that you will not go far in music. Let's take the piano. If you don't know C-F-D-E-F-A-B, yes or no? No comment. I missed the G. I missed the G. You will not go far in football if you do not know receiving and passing, dribbling or shooting. The basics are never moved on from. They are fundamental to everything that you do. And the same is true in the Christian life. We never move past the gospel. We go deeper in the gospel. We never get past. We go deeper in Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. It is that reality and all that it means that is fundamental to a faithful and a fruitful Christian life. And it is what is at the very foundation of what Jesus teaches his disciples in John chapter 15. So turn to John 15. It's in the New Testament. It's the fourth gospel. And I'm going to read the first 17 verses of this chapter. John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments. And abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
then someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Here's the main point you should get from this text. Abide in Jesus. No, really. Abide in Jesus. That you might bear fruit. Abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. That you might bear lasting fruit. So let's see this first. Abide in Jesus from verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8. Last week we saw in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 20, that Jesus has just taught his disciples, you, his disciples, are in me, and I am in you. And it's here that Jesus is unpacking what that means. I am the true vine. It's the seventh time in this gospel Jesus has said, I am. And yet, when Jesus said this, to his disciples, he did not say this in a, in a vacuum. Jesus taught this in the context of a, a world of meaning that they understood. Now, the same would be true here. If I began to talk about Sheikh Zayed, or National Day, or Sham, or if I were to talk about the Trucial States, all of that would mean something to you living here. I wouldn't have to explain that to you. Same was true for his disciples. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were referred to as God's vine, as God's vineyard. Uh, that's what Doug read to us in Psalm 80, the background for this text. God planted a vine. He protected the vine. And yet again and again, what did that vine do? It bore bad fruit because of idolatry. We see this in the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 5, in chapter 27, he, in chapter 5, speaks of Yahweh's vineyard as having produced bitter grapes. And so it must be judged. And then in Isaiah 27, Yahweh declares his love for his vineyard. And he promises, Isaiah 27, 6, in days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom, and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. It's that background in mind when Jesus says, I am the true vine. It was a mystery that had been hidden from God's people for generations, but now it's being revealed. Jesus, the true vine, is true Israel. Israel had her moments, and yet for centuries, she had borne bad fruit. 
So here is a, a turning point, a beginning point, when we see how God will fulfill his great purposes for his people to fill the whole world with fruit. Jesus, who is the true vine, and who is in the Father, will bear fruit. Because the Father is in the Son, and the Father is the vine dresser. So before we understand what Jesus is teaching about how he relates to his disciples, and how his disciples relate to him, prior to that, is how the Father relates to the Son and the Son to the Father. That is most basic. That is what is fundamental. Jesus abides in the Father and the Father in the Son. So his being in the Father in his life in the flesh was necessary for his own spiritual vitality, and fruit. And the same is true for us. When we give ourselves to learning about who our triune God, the God who is, how He is and how He relates to His persons, we are not leaving what is practical to what is abstract and impractical. We are leaning into, we are learning what is vital for the Christian life and for fruit-bearing for God. This mutual indwelling of Father and Son is necessary for us to understand Jesus when He says, I am in you. It is necessary for us to understand what it means that Christ indwells His people By the Spirit. So Jesus uses this extended metaphor of a vine and branches, teaches disciples how to be faithful and fruit bearing. Now, what does any vine dresser want from a vineyard? The vine dresser doesn't just want maximum fruit, but the best fruit. That's the goal. And so Jesus is using this agricultural reality that every disciple understood now to teach them what they don't understand about fruit bearing, not in a vineyard, but in the kingdom of God. And Jesus teaches what every one of them would have known there in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So the branches are disciples connected to Jesus. And I would assume you wonder what it means that Jesus is saying when he talks about being taken away. For not bearing fruit. Or look down at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch, thrown into the fire and burned. I want to be clear. Jesus is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. 
in John's gospel, we have seen again and again, that there are those who follow Jesus, say they believe in Jesus, but don't prove to be a true disciple of Jesus. So look back at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 66. We read, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. After this was Jesus' teaching that proved too hard for them. And they proved not to be his disciples. Go two chapters later, chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 30. John writes, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And yet, if you read just a little further, Jesus taught those who had believed that they needed to be set free by the truth. And they, as Abraham's offspring, could not stomach the fact that anyone would ever suggest that they were slaves who needed to be freed. And so they wanted to kill Jesus. John is demonstrating you can have a superficial connection to Jesus and prove not to be a true disciple of Jesus. Which brings me to the FA Cup. FA Cup is the oldest national football tournament in the world. And I think one of the most striking things about it, it's played in London every year, is before the match, 15 minutes, it's a packed stadium. They sing the hymn, Abide With Me. You can look up the history and tradition of it later, but the hymn that we just sang, it's remarkable to me in our day that that tradition continues. This song of such profound depth, probably sung by people in various states of sobriety, all of their gusto, they sing, abide with me, and yet my guess is so many of them have never given a second thought to what it is that they sing You can sing a song of such depth and yet not be abiding in Jesus. You can be a professor of faith and not a possessor of faith. That's the context for Jesus saying, every branch in me does not bear fruit. He, the vine dresser, takes away. Superficially attached to Jesus, not really one of Jesus' own. Judas was one of his disciples. So when we read the scriptures, we must read them in the context of the whole of the scriptures. The Jesus who taught in John 10 of his sheep, whom the Father has given to him, no one will snatch them out of my hand, is the same Jesus teaching here about fruit and the vine. If you have been truly saved, you will never lose your salvation. All whom the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son, and not one who has been given to the Son, and to whom the Father and the Son have given the Spirit, will be lost. But those 
like Judas, who are mere professors and not possessors, will be taken away. That's what this language in verse 6 is picking up on. This language of being thrown into the fire. That's judgment language in Scripture. It's not just the loss of rewards, but judgment. And so a, a vine dresser takes away bad branches. Why? So that the vine can give its full energy, its full strength to maximum and the best fruit bearing in the good branches. That's why the vine dresser prunes. That's sanctification. It's the Father working through the Son by the Spirit to make the disciples more like the Son. Why? To bear fruit. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know the Father prunes His people. He does this to work in you, produce in you, what you cannot produce in yourself. So He graciously meets us where we are. He saves us where we are, but so kindly does not leave us where we are. Jesus prunes. Now, how does he do this? Well, he does it in extraordinary and ordinary ways. Right now, the risen Christ is actively pruning by spirit. The word is going forth. It's conforming us. I hope it's encouraging you, instructing you, bringing conviction of sin, causing Jesus Christ to be glorious to you. When we sit under God's word, it is a stewardship, a great stewardship. And we should take advantage of this weekly time together. It's our feast on the word. Chew on the word. Pray over the word. The Lord in his wisdom put this rhythm in our life to shape us, to change us. He also works through our circumstances sometimes in extraordinary ways because he has eternity and not just time in view. If you were to think about your own life, what pruning might the Lord be doing in you right now in your circumstances? Don't fight that. Lean into that. Ask the Lord to use that to prune you. And of course, the Lord uses people. Oh, think of the people the Lord has used in your life. Think of people in this body. This is the body of Jesus Christ. Don't think less of the ordinary folks around you. Christ gives us to each other to help us bear more fruit. All of us, no exceptions. All of us need the body. Where are you when it comes to this body? You pressed in or do you stay back at arm's length? You see it as good for them, but not for you. I've been here now long enough to see the difference in growth in people's lives. When they press in to the whole body and when they stay on the edges. Friends, this is a gift from Jesus Christ. Receive it as that. The Lord prunes us in the context of his people that are like us and not like us. Press into it. More fruit bearing in your life 
is at stake. Why can Jesus say to his disciples, you will bear more fruit? Verse 3, they're already clean. They may be weak in faith, they may misunderstand much, but they have been cleansed by Jesus. So see that fruit bearing is only possible for those that are genuinely connected to the vine, indwelled by the Spirit. Those who've trusted in Jesus Christ alone for what He can and He does give in salvation. So it's there in verse 4 that Jesus begins to say what He says over and over and over again. Abide in me. Now, if you're reading from the NIV, it says, remain in me. It's capturing the thought of this. Abiding is what's fundamental, the basics of the Christian life. Remember, this is not salvation. Only the one in Christ abides in Christ. Abiding is ongoing, daily, regular trust. Communion, obedience, joy in Christ. And yet notice Jesus also says, verse 4, and I in you. So he's abiding in us. He's guarding us. You in me, I in you. And so he's very basically teaching his disciples whom he will soon leave. Regular fellowship, trust, communion, with him by the Spirit. But why? Well, first, look at verse 4. Unless a branch abides in the vine, it bears no fruit. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5. Abiding in Jesus is necessary, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, he doesn't obviously mean you can't do anything. What he means is you can do nothing of eternal or lasting value. Second, more positively, verse 5 again, whoever abides in Jesus bears much fruit. Third, not abiding, verse 6, leads to judgment because it proves that you were never connected to Jesus Christ, the vine, In the first place. Fourth. Verse 7. Abiding in Jesus. And notice his words in you. Means asking for whatever you wish. And it will be done. For you. Now if your immediate thought. When you read that is that. I'll ask for Jesus. All the selfish things I want in the world. Then you've missed his point. When his word is in you, you will ask for what is consistent with his word. When his word is in you, your prayer life will be an overflow of that. You will pray according to the will of Jesus. And get this, your prayer life will lead to great fruitfulness. Even your prayer life is an outworking of fruitfulness. I mean, how often do you connect the success of your prayer life, accomplishing Much things for the kingdom in prayer with your abiding in Jesus and his word in you. He is teaching us. He's motivating us to stay in close fellowship with the Savior. Not just so that we thrive spiritually, yes, but that we might bear fruit. Remember, he's come from heaven. 
He knows what heaven is like. And so he teaches us how to bear fruit for the kingdom of heaven. And he tells us all of this, verse 8, is to the Father's glory that you bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. What's he doing? He's preparing his disciples, his new people, for all the kind of fruit bearing that we read about in the prophet Isaiah. When the whole world will be filled with the fruit of God's people. I can assure you when the prophet Isaiah spoke that word to God's very unfaithful people. They knew that kind of world could only come by God's power alone. Isn't this what our God has been about since the beginning? Since the creation of the world. The very first creation in which male and female were to be fruitful and multiply physically helps us understand spiritually when Jesus, who by his death and his resurrection, brings about new creation. His new creation people will bear fruit, will multiply, will fill the earth. So the origin Jesus calls us to abide in him. Why? He means for you and me to be fruit-bearing Christians who multiply. What is fruit-bearing? It's easy to reduce this to stuff, to acts. It's not less than that. More than that, actually. Evangelizing, prayer, someone coming to faith, evidence of fruit, not the limitation of it. Fruit is the whole range of your Christian life being conformed to Jesus through abiding in Jesus. It's becoming more like Jesus. Jesus wants that for you, Christian. So good fruit can look like a Christian who maybe is characterized by selfishness, suddenly more and more concerned for other people. And they're good. Or someone who's generally discontent or prideful. Suddenly being more content. More humble. When we abide in Jesus, Jesus deeply changes us. He transforms us. Have you moved on from abiding? Or are you growing deeper in it? We are abiding somewhere. Where is that for you? Social media? Your phone? Activities? You do and do and do. Here's one for our congregation. What about ministry? So busy doing, you've moved on from abiding. Remember, Martha was busy. Mary chose the good portion. Ministry for Jesus does not replace abiding in Jesus. How can we labor for Jesus when we don't know personal fellowship with Jesus? Are you abiding in Jesus? When we abide in Jesus, rightly understood, it leads to 
more fruit-filled activity for Jesus. Greater love for Christ, greater hatred for sin. You know, vines don't produce fruit overnight. I was reading about this in the ancient world. It took three years often for a good crop to come. Fruit bearing in the Christian life doesn't happen overnight. I was thinking about this, and so many of you came to my, my mind. You've labored in this place. You've loved this body and the people here. And you've done this because the risen Christ has saved you and he's transforming you. You're growing in Christ. You're bearing fruit. Do you want to be fruitful in the Christian life? In prayer? In ministry? Abide in Jesus. Secondly, secondly, this is the second point. Abide in Jesus' love. This really is the point of the whole sermon. Abide in Jesus' love. Verses 9 through 17. So he's told this story, and now he's going to explain it and push it deeper so that we might understand abiding in the fruit that comes from it. And notice what he says in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so... I have loved you. Wow. How has the Father loved the Son? Completely? Eternally? Fully? Lacks nothing? The Father from all eternity has been showering love and delight in the Son. Delighting in the Son before creation, delighting in the Son as the Father through the Son creates the universe through Him, for Him, and gives Him a people that's His own. Nothing lacks in the Father's love for the Son. And then Jesus turns to His disciples and He says, as the Father has loved me like that, so I have loved you. Now, let that sentence seek in. If you've trusted Jesus, hear Jesus say, so I have loved you. Now, the disciples can't fathom what that means when they hear it, but the Spirit's going to bring all things to remembrance after the cross. And I imagine they were astonished as they were plumbing the depths of that. How has Jesus loved his own? Completely, eternally, fully, a love that lacks nothing. Veils his glory, he comes into history, takes on flesh, and goes to the cross. The risen Jesus, brother and sister, knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. There were things that surprised you and me about my life this past week. Didn't surprise him. He knows you. And he says to you, so I have loved you. And the application of this is to just sit in that sentence. Abide in it. Receive it. 
Don't move on. Abide in his love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It's only after Jesus explains this does he say to his disciples, abide in my love. Daily, regularly, communion, prayer, trust, abide in me. Abide in my love. Jesus wants you to hear this. Who he is and his love are all bound up together. Cannot be separated. Remember, it's his love for us, his own, that is first, that is prior to our love for him. Now, when we hear this statement, abide in my love, I think it can be easy to reduce it to mere sentiment or emotion. And yet, notice the kindness of Jesus. He teaches us what this looks like. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. But what, is, what drove his life on earth? To obey, fulfill all the Father had given to him. Father loves the Son. Son loves the Father. This love for the Father moves his obedience all the way to the cross. Jesus obeys the Father. And so the disciple abides in his love by obeying him. He is saying, love for me will work itself out in demonstrable ways. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Love and marriage demonstrates itself in action. It is very important to say the words, I love you. It is also necessary that your life says to your spouse, I love you. Because what you do can undermine what you confess. If you love Jesus, you will not call good what Jesus calls evil. You will side, not perfectly, but faithfully and repentantly. You will side with your Savior, not with sin. He knows you. The one who knows he's been loved by Jesus obeys his commands. And I want you to see that this obedience, this outworking of this, is not to kill your joy. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So he's already promised his disciples my peace. He's told us to abide in my love. And now he teaches us how to know my joy. Full joy. I think it must be one of the greatest triumphs of hell. So many people think that obeying Jesus is the kill joy. When Jesus himself is teaching us how to know fullness of joy. Obeying him is not drudgery. And yet we know that we live in a world that thinks the opposite. When we think of obedience, we so easily think of obedience as duty. And yet the scriptures present a world in which everyone's obeying something or someone. The question is who or what? And is it worthy of your obedience? 
Christ fulfills the law. He gives us the spirit. And so what is our duty becomes delight. I mean, just think of someone who's loved you, truly loved you. Most of you, I I hope, will think of your parents. And I hope that you see how honoring them is joy. How that gives you joy. Now, it's a human analogy, so it, it breaks down. But Jesus is teaching his people how to know freedom and joy. Abiding, which works out in obedience, which leads to joy. Now, Jesus, we sing, was the man of sorrows, many sorrows. But he had a joy this world could not touch. It was for the joy set before him that he goes to the cross. And he goes to the cross that my joy may be in you. Friends, this world is not anywhere near as serious about your joy as Jesus is. What is it that brings you joy? If you just had that. Joy lasts only as long as the enjoyability of the object. It's great to know joy in lesser things when your true joy is anchored in the joy that Jesus alone gives. Then you see life as a gift. All of it. If we're going to abide in his love, we will obey his commandments. And he sums up his commandment in this way. Love one another as I have loved you. He teaches this again. And again he teaches how he has loved his own. Greater love has no one than this. than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Why is this the greatest love? Because this is the kind of love that has the good of the other fully in view, even at the cost of your loss. Do you love like this? Is there sacrifice in your life for even other people in this body with whom you have nothing in common? but God's spirit. This is Jesus's wisdom. It's not just for some of us. It's all of us. How can you love his disciples if you're not around his disciples? We we learn to love like this together in the school of the, the church. We learn to live out these commands. Realize what Jesus has done to demonstrate his love to his own. He's, he's taken on flesh. The, the angels understood the infinite proportions to which he had condescended, the infinite love that he had. But here he is now with friends who've misunderstood him. One is left to betray him. One is about to deny him. All of them are about to be too tired to even pray with him. But he will love them to the cross. He willingly has committed himself in friendship, knowing that these friends are going to abandon him in his greatest agony. His love is most clearly seen in agony on the cross. His love for a world that is bent on saving itself but cannot save itself. Jesus lived. He died. That we might live 
and abide in him. Do you know this love and this joy that Jesus gives? Do you want to know fullness of joy in Jesus? You must turn from whatever it is you seek your joy in outside of Jesus and trust Jesus. The mystery revealed is that Jesus died to win life. And now he's raised and ascended and offers you life in his name. Where are you seeking life? What love do you abide in? You would know this joy and this life. You must turn from your own sin and efforts to pursue life outside of Jesus and trust him alone. He will give you life eternal. This call to abide in him is a call to rest, be confident, find joy in in him. I want you to see clearly that God's love is always flowing outward. Life-giving power. So here we see Jesus speaking of his disciples as his friends. At the same time, they are apart from Jesus, to use Paul's language, enemies of God. But Paul and John are, are allowing us to see the love of Jesus from different angles. Love that moves outward for the good of the one loved. Why does Jesus say, you're my friends if you do what I command you? Not because that's the condition of friendship, but because that's what characterizes the friendship. Those who have known and abided in Jesus, just as Jesus did with the Father. Love for him is never separated from obedience to him. But I don't want you to miss this. It is astonishing that Jesus tells his disciples they will be his friends. He's even drawing it out in verse 15. No longer servants, but friends. Servant doesn't know what the master does. Jesus has disclosed everything he's heard from the Father. A servant is told what to do. A friend is taken into your confidence. A servant is told what? The friend is told the what? The why? The goals? This is a new reality because Jesus died, rose, and ascended. His disciples become friends of God. Go read your Old Testament this afternoon. Two people are called friends of God in the entire Old Testament. Abraham and Moses. And they're a pretty big deal. Here Jesus says, all my disciples will be friends. So what are our privileges? Remarkably, the Father has taken us into his confidence and disclosed to us his purposes and plans in Christ. We know where the Father is leading the universe. We know the realities behind the reality of this present age. Jesus means for his disciples to know no matter the circumstance, you know ultimately what is going on and where things are going. He's taken us into his confidence. And that's meant to give his disciples great confidence and humility. Before we begin to think pridefully 
more of ourselves. Jesus is quick to say, I chose you. Not because of what is in us, but all that's in him. So rightly understood, biblically understood, election motivates responsibility, not passivity. That's the Old Testament pattern. God chooses his people, not because they're impressive, because of his love, and he entrusts to them great responsibility to be faithful and fruitful in the land. Election is a stewardship. That's what he says in verse 16. Chosen and appointed to go and bear abiding fruit so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it. He wants the disciples in that upper room to understand this is not an exclusive club. You are to expand. You're to go. You're to labor. You're to ask for more fruit. We know the Father's purposes for the universe. We know that He intends to give a bride to His Son that He might be glorified for eternity. That in the coming ages, the Father will be pleased to display more and more of the immeasurable riches of His grace in Jesus Christ. And He's taken us into His confidence that we might live for this end. Because of Jesus, abiding in Jesus, we can bear fruit that lasts. We can pray for what will last. Our lives, which we would have just wasted, can be lived for glory that lasts. Jesus is giving us every reason to abide in his love in a world so hostile that it will kill Jesus. That we might, verse 17, love one another. This is always a hard Sunday in our own church's life. Many of you are leaving Ras Al-Khaima, some for the summer, others for good. It's very providential that we come to this Sunday at this very high point of the farewell discourse. Of course, Jesus was saying farewell to his disciples. He says to you this morning, abide in me. Abide in my love. No matter where you go or what you do, you will never grow beyond that. You grow deeper in that. As some of you leave this place, your loves have changed. You know and you love more your Lord. You now know more of His work, even His work in this place. And so as you go, your love has expanded. I pray you know more and understand Jesus when He says, So have I loved you. Fully, completely, lacking in nothing. If you don't believe in Jesus, don't you wish there were love like that? There is in Jesus love that will not let you go. So as you go, abide in Christ. Abide in his love by obeying his word and witnessing to his name. Remembering that by blood, he has forever made you his friend.